countries that have solid climate policies, that's also an indicator those are good countries to invest in. They're countries that are going to have stable policies around their energy sectors. And although, yes, they may have more stringent regulations, they may also have more certainty of policy. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program and our project on climate agreements. As listeners know, in these podcast episodes, I engage in conversations with leading experts from academia, private industry, government, and NGOs with our focus always being on environmental economics and policy, typically within the realm of climate change policy. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us someone who has had broad experience and broad internationally working on a variety of environmental issues from an economic perspective. And I'm referring to my long-term colleague and friend, Susie Kerr, who founded Motu Economic and Public Policy Research in Wellington, New Zealand, and is now the chief economist of the Environmental Defense Fund in New York City. Susie joins us today from New Zealand. Susie, welcome to Environmental Insights. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be on. So uh, we're very interested to hear your thoughts about the economic dimensions of environmental and climate change policy. But before we talk about that, our listeners are always interested to know how it is you came to be where you are and where you've been. So we're going to go way back to get started. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in New Zealand and did my undergraduate there. And uh, New Zealand, as I'm sure you all know, is a country where the environment is, is very near to hand. So it's always been close to my heart. And, and from anyone who's visited, including myself, what we always take note of is that it has to be one of the most beautiful countries of the world in terms of its natural endowment. So you finished, that was the University of Canterbury, is that right? That's correct. And then after that, as you know, after working for a while in the Treasury in New Zealand, I uh, came and did my PhD with Rob as one of my supervisors at Harvard. At Harvard, and you graduated in 1995. What, What was your first job out of school? So my first job was teaching at the University of Maryland in the Agriculture and Resource Economics. Uh, really, I chose it partly so that I could learn more about the environmental economics because that was a relatively new field at the time mm-hmm. and hadn't mm-hmm. been my background. So you were an assistant professor in that department, and, th- and that's an excellent department. But um, after some amount of time, I actually don't know how much time, uh, you moved on and you spent time, am I right, at RFF and at MIT and perhaps other places? Yeah, so I was at Maryland for about three years and then mm-hmm. I actually got terrifically homesick and went back to New Zealand and created Motu. Uh, uh-huh. And then during my time at Motu, I really wanted to keep my connections um, with the wonderful community that I'd found in the Northeast. And so I 
lucky. I was lucky to spend time at Resources for the Future. I spent uh, most of a year at MIT, uh, and then I, I also spent some time at, at Stanford a bit later. So I sort of was lucky enough to have a career where I could go backwards and forwards between the US, and I also spent a, a year and a half in Latin America. Um, so getting that broader perspective. New Zealand's wonderful, but it's unbelievably isolated. Yeah, indeed it is. I know that for having tried to fly there a few times and had trouble getting there, actually. Um, so how did, how did it happen that you founded a, a new institution, Motu Economic Research? Well, you've got to put part of it down to youthful optimism and naivety. I and one of my colleagues uh, was in my economics class at Harvard, uh, labor mm -hmm. economist Dave Murray, and we both saw these wonderful institutes in the United States, like the Urban Institute and Resources for the Future and Brookings. And we thought it would be wonderful to work for somewhere like that, but there's nothing like that in New Zealand. So we thought if Americans can create something like that, why don't we? So we went back to New Zealand and we, we created it. And it's become extremely successful as, as, as far as I can see, um, only once having been there to participate in something, but having been a regular consumer of your research prod products and others that come out. We're very pleased with how, how it's done. And we've had a lot of wonderful support from some of my international colleagues, including you, Rob. Am I right that in early 2019, you joined EDF as its chief economist? I did. I joined in February 2019. So that, that raises a question in my mind, because it, it, whereas MOTU, at least as I understand it, is really an economic research think tank, not unlike resources for the future, EDF is very much an advocacy group. So I'm interested to know what has that transition been like for you? So in some ways, it hasn't been a difficult transition. Uh, some of my colleagues at EDF are, are people I've worked with already before. Um, so people mm -hmm. like Ruben Lebowski and Nat Cohane. Um, right. And my role at EDF is very much to provide the economics basis for the advocacy. So I'm not directly mm -hmm. involved in advocacy myself. Um, but of course, I've never been in an organization that does advocacy. So that's been a fantastic opportunity to be able to directly connect my work with people who are able to then take that next step and and do the political advocacy around it. And I don't always agree with everything they do with that, of course, and that's mm -hmm. that that's fine and good. You know, since you mentioned Ruben Lebowski and Nat Cohane, I can't help but point out that uh, both are also uh, Harvard PhDs, I think both in political economy and government, uh, and both were also students of mine. So, um, and and Nat was recently uh, with us in a in a webinar that we did. So let's turn then to the economic to substance, the economic dimensions of environmental policy. Um, Susie, when you were in New Zealand, you carried out quite a bit of research on the country's emissions trading system, as I recall. Can you say something about what were the highlights of your findings? I mean, first describe the, tr the trading system, and then what were some highlights of your f findings from all of your research? Yes, yeah, so because New Zealand is such a small country, I was involved in the design of the ETS from the beginning, uh, from back mm -hmm. in 1995. Um, and New Zealand has a cap-and-trade system. It's very similar to the California cap-and-trade mm -hmm. 
Uh, it started in 2008, so it was the second in the world. Um, and it's economy-wide, it's, it's what we call upstream, so it covers nearly all, fo- well, basically all fossil fuels uh, and most other emissions um, in New Zealand. Uh, and one of the highlights, I think, is that it covers the forestry sector, and New Zealand is still uh, probably the one that covers that most comprehensively. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And because we were early, we were having to solve a lot of problems that really were only in the literature at the time. So things like output-based allocation, free allocation was something we did first. Um, And we didn't really know what we were doing. Small country, very tiny team implementing this sort of stuff. So, but also low consequence, you know, to the, a lot of what we were trying to do was experiment and learn so that others could, could learn from, from our experience. Now with small country, then that means that the concerns about the competitiveness effects of a cap-and-trade system or any climate policy, for that matter, were probably very prominent. You mentioned that you used an output-based updating allocation, and I, I actually I did not know that. Um, wh- were there other aspects of how you addressed what must have been huge political concerns and concerns raised by private industry about competitiveness effects? Yeah, so it was a big issue, continues to be a big issue um, because of the nature of our competitors. Um, We really tried to dig into the extent to which there were leakage effects um, Mm -hmm. from climate policy as opposed to competitiveness uh, issues uh, because competitiveness issues really were, were about the effects on asset values and the way our system was created politically was it was an all sectors, all sources system. So it was sort of accepted that everybody was going to lose something um, out of the process. And at the time, it was about losing. And thus, it, that was very much the framing of was around cost. Um, we weren't able to find any clear evidence that there was going to be leakage or that it was really very sensible to spend a lot of resources protecting it. But politically, we had to, which is why we ended up with the output-based. But you can't really do economics modelling of competitiveness issues in a country where there's two cement manufacturers and one steel, <laughs> and you know, right. it becomes a little bit idiosyncratic. Well, you mentioned two important words in terms of concerns about competitiveness with carbon pricing regimes. One was economics and one was politics. I, my my general um, read of research with regard to the EU ETS um, is that although uh, politics, it's been a huge issue politically, that in fact the system has not been a had significant impacts economically in terms of relocation, you know, new investments outside of the EU, um, possibly in a few uh, poster child sectors like Portland cement production. But by and large, it tends to be more of a political issue than an economic issue, it seems. That is my impression. The evidence just isn't very strong. And Mm -hmm. uh, those who are concerned about it point out that the evidence is at very low carbon prices that we've had so far. So this might look quite different right. when we get to the carbon prices we really need. Right. But but I think there are so many things that drive the location of a company. The chances right. that an existing company would move seems fairly low. I think it's a different issue for developing countries where you're looking at new investment. And really mm-hmm. an investor has a lot of choices. So that mm-hmm. may be more flexible, but 
Countries that have solid climate policies, that's also an indicator those are good countries to invest in. They're countries that are going to have stable policies around their energy sectors. And although, yes, they may have more stringent regulations, they may also have more certainty of policy. And for companies, that certainty is often more important than the actual level of, of you know, effective price. Well, companies continue, and even more so now, to be concerned in Europe uh, because of the fact that the EU ETS is becoming more stringent over time, relying more on auctioning. So for all those reasons, cost increasing for European firms. I'm sure you're aware of the fact that a carbon border adjustment mechanism, the CBAM, is going to be begin collecting data in 2023 to be implemented in 2025. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, it's been something we've been discussing for 20 years. It is a more elegant solution than the output-based allocation. It it has much lower cost to taxpayers. Uh, it avoids some of the domestic distortions that you get with output-based allocation. So that's good. The logistical issues of bringing in a CBAM are, are huge when countries have you know, if we all had carbon pricing, it would be pretty easy, but we don't. We have a whole mix of policies in different countries. Some have carbon pricing, but everybody has other policies. That that complexity is huge. And the other issue is equity you know, across countries. And does it really make sense for us to be charging countries who have low policy stringency because they're very poor? And they haven't been able to to bring that in yet. And I think it's critically important that the EU couple any introduction of CBAM with really active support for the poorest countries so that they are supported to have a climate transition rather than expected to do that, you know, entirely on their own. So it's it's interesting you mentioned the poor countries and in terms of just numbers of countries, they make up a majority of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and their perspective, which we hear voiced regularly regarding the Europe's proposed CBAM, is that this violates, in their view, the Paris Agreement, since the whole structure of the Paris Agreement is that each country would state its own ambition and how it was going to achieve it, and they view the CBAM as Europe forcing other countries to adopt its stringency or its policies. What's your reaction to that? Well, as you know, the Paris Agreement isn't going to get us to 1.5 degrees, um, possibly not even to two. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, the developing countries are going to be most of the emissions very soon, if if not already. So Mm -hmm. they're going to have to do reductions. The question is, who's going to, you know, pay for that, who's going to finance that, and and where does the CBAM fit into that? And they don't have to bring in policies in response to the CBAM, but of course they're going to, to potentially suffer if they don't. But that's why I think it's really important that this isn't just a stick. It's mm-hmm. not a we're in the club and we're doing the right thing and you're not, so we're going to penalise you. This is a you know, we're get, getting ahead and it's becoming difficult for us, so we need to provide some protection, but we'll work with you in order for you to join the club too and so that you can have the policies that you're going to need to make the transition because if they wait too long to have a transition, it's going to be very painful for those developing countries. So that's interesting. I, I want to um, depart from our chat about climate policy and go back to... Uh, New Zealand, where you are now. Um, 
And that's because um, some of the world's most important individual transferable quota systems, ITQ systems for fisheries regulations, uh, are located in New Zealand along with Iceland. And my recollection is that you have studied those. So um, two questions, can you, and our, our listeners may not know about ITQ systems, so can you give us a very brief explanation of what an ITQ system is for fisheries? And then again, what are some of the key findings from the research you've done? An ITQ system is an individual transferable quota system. At EDF, we call them catch shares, which is a little bit of a, an easier title. So essentially mm -hmm. what it puts on is a limit on the total number of tons of fish that can be caught in, in a given period of time. And then it shares those uh, that limit as quota among the fishermen. And what we have found um, from our research, which is quite a few years back now, was that the system basically did operate as it was intended to. Uh, there is evidence mm -hmm. that it leads to economic gains, it leads to improvements in sustainability. Um, and uh, But I think that the, uh, the contention that surrounds these systems now is... Um, really about the equity implications. Who is it who ends up actually owning those quota and owning those property rights? And mm -hmm. that was something that was uh, problematic initially in the New Zealand system, where they were given to boat owners. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's been a problem in, in other systems as well. And it's also a problem over time as, as you know, ownership tends to get concentrated of these quota. Right. Which is what one would anticipate because the most efficient operations, which are going to be the larger operations typically, not the mom and pop one boat operations, um, are going to tend to buy up the allowances. Yes, they will tend to. They have the capital to do so, etc. So I want to um, make a connection now, if I could, between New Zealand and the United States, which you experienced. And that's because when you moved from MOTU to EDF, in early 2019, Jacinda Ardern was and, and is New Zealand's prime minister. And the US president then was one Donald Trump. I cannot imagine two national leaders, two heads of state who are more different than Prime Minister Ardern and former President Trump. What was it like for you to make that transition? Well, I got laughed at by a lot of my colleagues who thought mm -hmm. I was doing something very strange. Um, I think the biggest difference is between somebody whose approach to every issue has been to encourage people to be kind and to think, mm -hmm. well, what is the kind response as a human being to other human beings to right. a, a very, very different world, which is... I, I won't even begin to try to characterize that. I think you can all do that yourselves. Indeed. And, and speaking of that, can, can I ask you, what is the status now with uh, COVID in New Zealand? You were doing spectacularly well for quite a while. Is that still the case? I just don't know. Just in the last few days, we've gone back into complete lockdown because there are a few cases in New Zealand. And mm -hmm. um, until then, it was completely open. You had to wear a mask on public transport, but that was basically the only constraint and um, so we're hoping that this extremely strict lockdown uh, will have the same effect as last time, that we'll actually obliterate mm -hmm. uh, it again 
Um, but, you know, at some point, New Zealand's going to have to open up again. Um, it's, it's pretty constrained in terms of international travel and so on. But yes, we've been extremely lucky. But currently it's closed to incoming international travel, is that right? Um, it's, uh, you can come into New Zealand uh, if you're a New Zealand citizen, but you do right. need to go through a managed quarantine process, which I is see, very, very strict. And currently at the moment, I can only go to the supermarket or the, or the, uh, to a doctor. Well, I hope all of that improves soon. Gosh. Well, relative to everywhere else in the world, we, we consider ourselves extremely lucky. Yeah, well, that's also true of, of the U.S. I mean, we're, you know, very well off here. You think about all the countries. Here we are complaining about the fact that we're at about 70% uh, vaccination of people over a certain age who are most susceptible, 90% of people over 70 and then you think about countries, all of sub-Saharan Africa and many other parts of the world that are at one to five or maybe 10% vaccination levels. Yes, it's inconceivable. Yeah, and they don't have the sort of leadership that we've been lucky to have. Right. Now, speaking of Mr. Trump, he, of course, withdrew the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement in November 4th, 2020 uh, on Inauguration Day, January 20th, uh, incoming President Biden began the process of rejoining. 30 days later, February 29th, the United States was again a part of the agreement. But that was the easy part. The hard part's coming up, of course, with a credible statement of how much U.S. emissions of greenhouse gases will be reduced and how it would be accomplished in a so-called nationally determined contribution, or NDC, as you well know. Now, the Biden administration announced its new NDC a few months ago, a pledge to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent below the 2005 level by 2030. That's an impressive target that's been celebrated by Greens in the U.S., um, Europeans, and perhaps others. But my question for you is whether or not you judge that to be credible. And when I say credible, I mean achievable with reasonably anticipated policy actions, not hoped for policy actions, but reasonably anticipated ones. What do you say to that? Well, I think as we all know, and you know, the research and the modeling all says this, it can be done. It, it's certainly possible. And a lot of it can even be done at very low cost. Whether it will be done is is a much more challenging question and and that's where it gets really hard actually implementing the policies that are effective even if you have the political will that's a difficult thing um and i suspect people are being too optimistic about that um certainly our teams are working extremely hard to get in the sort of policy uh set that that will lead to this sort of change i think without having some sort of enforceable cap um, we can't guarantee that those policies will be effective. Um, I think, in general, history teaches us that policies are always, or almost always, less effective than we think they're going to be. Right. And, and major new climate legislation, unless you would refer to the new economic package that's in the House, unless you refer to that as climate legislation, that seems not to be in the cards, although the infrastructure package, which is more promising politically at this on this date, um, that would have some effects on on climate, on greenhouse gas emissions, wouldn't it? 
Yes, and some of that is is absolutely critical uh, action in order to enable the private sector and others and and the states to actually have effective action. So so mm-hmm. it's it's a foundational part. It's not enough on its own. There's, this is going to need the private sector. It's going to need states, and it's going to need federal action all to work together in, in a more aggressive way than we're currently seeing. But you can't leap in and suddenly do this stuff all at once. You do have to get some level of broad agreement, or otherwise the policies just get reversed later, and that's not going to lead to the investment we need. Yeah, and, and that talking about the policies getting reversed sometimes i hear my european friends and colleagues um, refer to the whiplash effect of going from the george w bush administration to the obama administration to the trump administration to the biden administration both in terms of participating in the international negotiations and in terms of domestic u.s rhetoric and domestic u.s action on uh, climate change that's particularly the case when one moves away from statutory action with the Congress, which is not so easy to reverse, and instead we turn to regulatory approaches, which of course the Obama administration did and the new Biden administration is doing. Um, A concern that I've had, but maybe you're gonna tell me that I'm too pessimistic. So I want, and and if you think so, I'd love to hear that. A concern I've had is that it could be much harder to put in place rulemakings um, during the Biden administration years than during the Obama years because of court challenges being much more likely now to succeed because Mr. Trump appointed 224 federal judges, which is more than 25% of the total, and now there's the Supreme Court conservative majority which favors a literal reading of statutes, which presumably would give less flexibility to interpret the statutes in innovative ways, such as concluding that the Clean Air Act article that focused on localized air pollutants applies to carbon dioxide and climate change. In fact, I've heard it said, um, I have no inside information, but I've heard it says that the Chevron Doctrine, which um, your lawyer colleagues at EDF probably consider to be extremely important because of the deference it gives to agency interpretations of statutes might even be overturned by this Supreme Court. So am I excessively pessimistic about um, the possibilities of meaningful regulatory actions during the Biden administration? You're getting quite a way out of my expertise here, Rob. I know all I can say is that I think the EDF legal team is outstanding. They work with outstanding legal teams in other places. They had a surprising level of success under Trump in protecting uh, some of the environmental regulations. I'm just hopeful they can carry that through into the really important precedent precedent-setting regulations that we need going forward. And it was a huge level of success um, during the uh, Trump years. Um, Ricky Revez from NYU was on with us a while ago, and he pointed out that usually, you know, with every administration, there are challenges to regulation, either from the environmental advocacy community with a Republican administration or from private industry. Uh, when there's a democratic administration and but the level the 
level of success of that litigation it, it does not vary a tremendous amount. I think it was something like, I, th I think he said something in the order of 20 to 30 percent or less even. But then during the Trump years, it was like 75 to 80 percent success of litigation challenging the regulatory of moves because they just weren't, apparently they weren't very well uh, designed. I don't know. Yes, and that's one of the wonderful things about the U.S. system is that it has these checks and balances that you do actually have to justify regulations and you have to justify removal of regulations. And so that provides the opportunity for rationality to prevail, even when politics are, are going a bit weird. Well, we sure hope so. Let, let me turn to ask you finally um, a broader question that I'd love to know your thoughts about. Something that we've seen particularly in the year 2019, dimmed a bit during COVID, but coming back. Um, something we've seen for sure has been the uh, rise of these youth movements of climate activism um, in Europe, in the United States, perhaps in New Zealand and other parts of the world. What's your reaction to those youth movements? I think they're they're brilliant. I think they're they're a marvelous thing. They they were strong in New Zealand, um, and and I was able to see very much the effect that they had on some of the key industry stakeholders. Essentially, their children were saying to them, "What are you doing, Dad? Or what are you doing, Mom?" And that brought them to the table in a way that they really weren't before. On the downside, these people are very young and they are being thrown into a terrifically complex and often contentious and emotionally charged environment. And the, the cost to them in terms of their own resilience has been very high over time. And I think Greta Thunberg is extraordinary in the way she's been able to persist here, but I've seen quite a lot of burnout. And so I think we need to support those young people and support them to be really effective in what they do, but also, you know, to be kids and you know, to grow up, not expect them to suddenly turn into to adults, advocates. You know, we've, we, we've seen, Susie, a lot of that uh, contrast in the last couple of weeks uh, in London with the Extinction Rebellion um, being condemning even of the United Kingdom, which in terms at least of its uh, renewed NDC, is out front in terms of ambition. I don't know if they'll live up to it, but it's been dramatic. A question that I have about the youth movements, and maybe you have some insights into this, is whether or not this is uh, there's, this is an age effect or a cohort effect. In other words, as they get older, will they carry forward the same degree of passion about climate change, or will that be somewhat diminished as they get older? Do you have any thoughts on that to wrap this up? I think there's inevitably an age effect in here that when you're younger, things are more black and white and you've got the enthusiasm. You don't have any mm -hmm. guilt about things that you did in your past and, and that will be right. common. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope we can turn that into a cohort effect by by um, enabling them to make this something they build into their careers. And I'm seeing this in some yeah. of the young people I've worked with. Um, I, I think often people burn out because they have all that idealism and then they get into a job and they can't see how to express it and, hmm. and they feel knocked down. So if we can support them to hold on to that idealism, then, then maybe we can make this a cohort effect and maybe they can make, we can help them make this a cohort effect. Well, that's a valuable objective 
that I fully endorse um, working in a, in, a, in a university uh, and personally for that matter. Um, and we're going to end with that. So thank you very much, Susie, for having taken time to, to join us today. Thank you so much, Rob. It's always lovely to talk to you. So thanks again to our guest today, Susie Kerr, the Chief Economist at the Environmental Defense Fund. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.